0: Welcome to Balance of Power on 103.9-1450-WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, also available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Joe Biden has offered a $1.9 trillion covid rescue plan this week a group of republicans uh, countered with a 600 billion dollar plan is biden going to try to negotiate this out with senate republicans or as many in his party are suggesting is he just going to try to jam his plan through congress what say you former congressman hodes
1: Oh, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we just play nice? So how wonderful it is for President Biden to invite the Senate Republicans to the White House, the first group of elected representatives to join him for crab cakes and pizza. I mean, just think about the kumbaya moment of the President surrounded by his former colleagues talking with each other for hours on end, a meeting that went well beyond its scheduled one hour because they had so much to catch up on. Hey, what about that insurrection? Hey, guys, remember that former president down there playing golf and spinning out theories about starting a new party? Oh, by the way, we have a slim majority here for Democrats and what are you guys thinking anyway? So I, I put out a $1.9 trillion plan, and you come back to me with some measly watered down $600 billion saying, yes, you want to help Americans, but is this really the way? Let's talk about it. And so they talked And they talked and they talked. And at the end, Susan Collins was very happy. She called it a productive meeting. And and I assume that it was productive in that, you know, nobody walked out. There are no reports of of brick bats being thrown. It was probably a pretty good time of catch up. Now, that said. Everybody on the Democratic side says, go big, go fast or go home. And even Chuck Schumer, even Wobbly Chuck, not my favorite majority leader, Wobbly Chuck, even Wobbly Chuck is on the go big, go fast program. So. Is there something to talk about? Sure. Is it important to show the American people that President Biden is reaching out to Republicans? Absolutely. Are we counting on any substantial compromise being made? Well, not really. I think that President Biden understands he's got a very limited time and a big, big problem. He's got 47 intersecting crises. Plus, he's tried to rebuild a hollowed out government. He doesn't have time to dither with obstructionists who have no appetite for actually using government for what government can do at a time when the crises, including the economic crises, actually demand a super Keynesian effort to pump money into all aspects of the economy and COVID relief and make stuff happen. So in the end, I think Joe Biden is going to be courteous. I think he'll be perhaps curious and courteous but in the end he's going to go big and go fast and he and schumer and pelosi have already uh, put together the budget reconciliation package to make this happen uh, even if the obstructionists say no
0: alicia your thoughts
2: you know, I'd like to see President Biden and the Republicans come together and meet in the middle, right? Negotiate, we technically have a split Senate. Um, sure, you know, they've got the control of the House and they've got control of the White House, but, you know, come to the table and honestly plan to negotiate. The difference between the two plans, there are a lot of places they can agree or they're very close, right? 300 a week in extra unemployment benefits versus 400 a week, a thousand dollar stimulus checks versus $1,400. You know, there are places they can negotiate. Um, You know, I think in the Republican plan, it says if you're making more than $50,000 a year, you'll get phased out of certain things. If you were making $50,000 a year before COVID and you're making it now, that makes perfect sense. There's nothing, you know, I don't see what the purpose of it is. And, And I'm not opposed to stimulus checks. I think there are enormous amount of struggling families out there that need them. Um, And I'm not opposed to extended unemployment benefits, but you have to balance how much, because what doesn't make sense in the Democrats' version of the bill is a $15 minimum wage. A, it just has nothing to do with this. Why is it in there to begin with? You're muddying the waters. And B, the whole package is predicated around the idea that people aren't working, people don't have jobs, and businesses are going out of business. Why would you possibly say, businesses, here's a chunk of money since you're going out of business. By the way, you've got to pay people more money who aren't working in the first place. It just muddies the waters. It's unnecessary, and that alone should be removed from the bill.
3: Matt? I agree, especially on that last point. I always saw some of the items in this $1. trillion proposal from the Biden administration as sacrificial lambs there to be jettisoned as part of a negotiation. I don't particularly read a lot into the fact that there was a protracted two-hour meeting about this, where not a lot seemed to get done, as former Congressman Hodes well knows, you don't do your negotiating in front of the cameras. And I don't think that there was any expectation that we would see that. There are some compelling reasons for the Biden administration to want to negotiate. For one thing, internally, his own economic advisors have some misgivings about the size of the payments that are set to go out to families in the package that he proposed. There is a phase out of how much you get as part of the, the package, and that phase out goes up to $300,000 a year. This is something that not only his own economic advisors have questioned, but also key parts of the Democratic coalition, including Senator Joe Manchin, have kind of thrown out there as this this doesn't seem economically productive, and it doesn't seem politically palatable. What I would think is going to happen here, given the upsides to reaching a uh, some kind of a, a meet in the middle, as Alicia suggested, I would expect that Biden is going to. At least I would advise him if I were if I were sitting in the White House. I would say, look, do kind of negotiations one on one. Put process on the table. Say we're going to negotiate for one week i've got the backstop of the reconciliation package that i can jam through i think the fact that he has not negotiated against himself by keeping the reconciliation option strongly on the table isn't a sign that he's planning to go ahead with it it's a sign that he's maintaining leverage and so i would advise him give a one week deadline say this is too urgent in terms of fighting the virus it's too urgent in terms of the suffering of american families and find a way to, as Alicia said, meet in the middle on some of the items where there appears to be pretty good consensus. Unemployment benefit extension, checks to American families, even the $20 billion in here, it only varies by 5 billion from the Biden plan for childcare support. So that's what I would do. I suspect
0: that the negotiation is not dead. So you do all agree that another stimulus package is in fact needed?
1: Yeah, I mean, this it needs to be big and it needs to happen quickly. And the American people need to see that their government is taking a new direction and is out to help them. And by the way, the Republicans would not uh, give any aid, apparently, to uh, states uh, and cities who are begging begging for help because they've been plastered. So one area where I do not believe that uh, the Democrats are going to give ground is on aid to states and cities, which is a big part of their $1.9 trillion package, not included at all at $600 billion. This is, look, this is like, negotiating a car accident if i i used to meet do a lot of mediation when i when i was a a, an active practicing lawyer i I also was an active mediator and you'd come in and and one uh, there'd be the insurance adjuster there and i'd have to make sure you have your supervisor on the phone because they never had any authority to do anything so in this case We have 10 Republicans trying to cobble together something bipartisan. Who knows how the rest of their uh, colleagues on the Republican side field. They come in with $600 billion. And you've got President Biden, newly elected, ready to go with all the leverage, $1.9 trillion and perhaps a few sacrificial lambs, though accomplishing a uh, $15 uh, an hour uh, hike in the federal minimum wage is hardly sacrificial when Democrats have been talking about it forever and ever. And it would, in fact, not hurt businesses but overall help the economy. That's a a good argument that Alicia and I could have probably for hours and hours and hours. I'd throw out the statistics about why in every place where there's a rise in the minimum wage, the economy does better. But putting all that aside, we have 1.9, we have 600. And by the time we're done, this package is going to be a $1.5 trillion package. It's going to nibble around the edges. Biden is going to nibble it around the edges. Everybody will say, look, look at what we did without a single Republican vote. One point five trillion dollars is going to be what we get for a package. And frankly, it's going to work. Yeah, Robeson. Folks, you can't see Robeson. He is giving me the down thumb, the shaking of the head, the Mr. (laughs) Naysayer look. Okay, Robeson, weigh in.
3: I think that every prediction we are going to make here is sure to be wrong. However... If I had to place my money on something, and I think we'll talk about this later in the show, the idea of placing your money on something like GameStop for no productive economic purpose. Uh. But if I were going to place my money on something, I would say that perception is a lot more important than reality when it comes to packages like this. And you take an item like the minimum wage, economic statistics are wonderful. And Democrat can be translated as repeats facts smugly. Yes, I agree. The economic argument is right. The minimum wage is good for jobs and for working people and for the economy. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The perception is that exactly what Alicia. Already enunciated. It's 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 an item that does not relate to the primary purpose of this rescue package, which is to rescue, rescue us from the steaming mess that Donald Trump left us in as far as the virus and the economy goes. So I think the perception point that really matters here is the $1 trillion mark. We already saw this play out in December with the downsizing of the package that was under negotiation there from $2 trillion, which Nancy. Pelosi had held the line on aggressively for six months, only to fold faster than Superman on laundry day, come December, down to $900 billion. I think we're going to end up at $900 billion. I think that the political arguments to make a compromise with Senate Republicans are going to be so compelling that the Biden administration is going to want to do it, is going to want to land there. There will be a token amount for cities and states. That's my prediction that is almost certainly wrong.
2: For my part, I think I agree mostly with Matt that there's going to be a bill that ends up somewhere between the two offerings. It will pass, it will pass with bipartisan support, although obviously it will not be unanimous. And the $15 minimum wage won't be in there for a few reasons. One, because I don't have to be an economist to know if I'm going out of business without $15 minimum wage and you make me pay people more, then I'm gonna go out of business quicker. And the other reason is the entire concept of a federal minimum wage implies that they can set a level that makes perfect sense for someone living in Chicago and makes perfect sense for someone living in Newfields, New Hampshire. It is ridiculous on its front that that makes any any comparable sense at all but it's not going to be in there something will pass and republicans and democrats will come together in a happy little kumbaya moment that they negotiated for political purposes not because any of them give a damn about us
0: is this a minimum wage that's going to be phased in or is it going to be 15 dollars immediately do we know uh, you
1: know the no, nobody knows. The way around this, though, is if you set a high, if if the federal government was to set a higher minimum wage, everybody would probably agree that it would be phased in over time, so that we would be moving from a 1970. Uh, wage uh, to a 1979 fair wage and then to a 1982 fair wage. And it would land around somewhere around 1994 uh, era fair wages with a $15 an hour um, minimum wage. And it's true. There are very there are variations across the country. On economic conditions and what's right. But here in New Hampshire, you know, we got $7.25. And it's because we're we're 1776 and all that. It's about, you know, you don't want to be telling nobody what they ought to do with their money. You're free to go somewhere else if you don't like working for $7.25. And you no know, federal government's going to tell me how much I should pay my employees. They can just go find some other kind of job. And so, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, Chicago, Newfields, New Hampshire. Well, just before we go, Newfields, New Hampshire, which is the home of our governor, they probably need a $30 minimum wage in order to to make it right and come up to Waterville Valley Sununu uh, standards. So so we're going to have a special minimum wage carve out for Newfields where it's double whatever the federal minimum wage is.
3: Although I would point out, Paul, that New Hampshire has one of the highest state median incomes in the country. Again, I I economically I'm on your side in the minimum wage debate. The, the data are actually pretty compelling, but I do think that Alicia has the right political argument here, which is is this the fight that we really want to be? Do we want to do, do we want to fall on our swords as Democrats on this issue when you know, you have said yourself, Paul, as an astute observer of and and an experiencer of the political dynamic. I mean, look, the last time we went through this, you were a member of the U.S. Congress. We went through this in 2009. We were in the midst of an economic crisis. We were in the midst of a financial meltdown. And the one lesson was you fix that and you make people feel that you fixed it or you are out. And Democrats know that, full well this time around. The most important thing, the only important thing is dealing with the dual economic and COVID crisis. Get that right. They've got a shot for everything else. Don't get that right. You're done. So I I just don't see them fighting that battle okay, this time. Okay. Around.
1: Okay. I concede. Alicia's absolutely right about this. It's political stupidity to try to push a $15 minimum wage in a COVID relief package right now. Okay, it's just would be dumb. So they're not going to hold on to it. It's a sacrificial lamb. They're going to let it go. But Biden will be able to say to the left, see, I told you I'd fight for it. I did. But it just couldn't happen this time. Don't worry. Sometime down the road in the next century, maybe we'll get to it. So I agree. Alicia, you're right. You're absolutely right. You're politically astute. And I'm just pulling all your legs for the purpose of fun radio. But it's really a, it's it's just like there's a bunch of stuff in there that that they're going to let go. Matt may be right about the trillion dollars or less. I do remember from way back in the way back machine. Uh, we didn't do a big enough package uh, when it came to the uh, ARA, American Recovery and Repair Act or whatever the name of it was. And, and what, one of the things that happened in that in that uh, debacle, nine hundred and sixty billion dollar debacle, was that there were these minuscule little tax cuts given to people and people did not feel. The effect of that relief, because the tax cut was about 12 cents a week and it didn't matter. Uh, So I am hoping Democrats have learned this time that the relief has to be targeted to help people.
0: Well, Matt and Paul, uh, you're both Jewish, so I have to ask you, uh, can you point that uh, Jewish space laser that started the California (laughs) wildfires (laughs) at New Hampshire to melt all this snow? (laughs)
3: You know, actually, now that you mention it, if you've ever seen the Mel Brooks movie, History of the World Part One, they had this Jews in space segment where their spaceships were all shaped like Stars of David. You know, Ken, we should probably, maybe we should explain to our listeners, you sound like you are, are crazy, but you're not crazy. You're citing a real thing Said by a real member of the U.S. House of Representatives, do, does anyone want to volunteer to to explain what the heck Ken is talking about here? Because it's it's off the wall. I, I will if you want. It, Alicia, do you want to take this one? <laughs> no, I mean, rather not. Rather not. <laughs> Representative <laughs> Representative Marjorie so Taylor Greene of Georgia posted in Paul. What was it? Twenty uh, seventeen. No, no.
1: November 17, 2018.
3: 2018. That she believed that the rampant California wildfires at the time had been started by a space laser controlled by international shadowy financial interests. We all know what that uh, dog whistle means. And she has come under fire in the last week for suggesting that Jewish space lasers are somehow besetting the United States of America. Um, I will just add to this story that this morning at the breakfast table, I had to explain to my daughter um, what this was all about. She's nine years old. I then went on to tell her that this is a real thing and that I would be gone next week because it was my turn to do maintenance on the Jewish space laser. Ah. To which she replied, wait, dad, really? So maybe I should stop pulling her leg.
1: I am so tired of you Democrats trying to put words into the mouth of a good representative like Marjorie Taylor Greene because she did not call them Jewish space lasers. She just happened to be talking about Jews and, and international financiers. That doesn't mean the space lasers were Jewish. She actually said, quote, then oddly, there are all these people who have said they said they saw what looked like lasers or blue beams of light causing the fires. Talking about the California wildfires, talking about that. And and, and, but she did not see Jewish space lasers. And all you people are just trying to make trouble where none should exist. She's a good trumpeter kind of representative and represents the people of Georgia with her guns and her statements and all her, 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 and all her independence. I love Marjorie Taylor green.
3: Take to Bernie Sanders.
2: <laughs> I have a lot to say about this, but I think you're giving a signal. So I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: On that note, we will take a break. We may talk more about space lasers uh, after the break right here on balance of power. One Oh three, nine. 1450 WKXL, NHTalkradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Balance of Power. Ken Kale here, joined by two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. I guess we have to get now serious, serious folks, and uh, maybe uh, Republicans need to confront two different kinds of problems right now. So far, uh, state parties have censored Republicans who voted in favor of Trump's second impeachment and have gone after party leader Liz Cheney. At the same time, the aforementioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has advocated violence against Nancy Pelosi, calls school shootings fake and does believe uh, the California wildfires were set by at least a space laser uh, is meeting with uh, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to determine her fate as Democrats call for her to be removed from committees. So, Alicia, how should Kevin McCarthy negotiate all of this?
2: Well, let's start with Congresswoman Green. Um, to use Matt's earlier analogy, this is a place Republicans should fall on the sword for, and they should uh, do whatever they can within their legal rights to uh, to remove her from committees or potentially expel her i don't know if you can expel someone for things they said before they were elected whatever the most severe actions they are allowed to take should be taken because we can laugh about the incredible um bigoted stupidity of Jewish space lasers all we want. But this woman also called Parkland and Sandy Hook where many people died a false flag. She doesn't think it's real. I don't know where all these dead children are hiding out but it is outrageous that she made it to Congress with that kind of mentality. Throw in all the other QAnon conspiracy garbage that she believes, um, you can't say these things. And if you believe them, you should keep them to yourself. And now she is representing one of only you know, 400 in Congress to uh, make laws that affect and protect the security and safety of America and her citizens. And um, I think the Republicans have to stand up and say, no, no, we're not gonna take this. We're not gonna accept this. We don't find this acceptable. I saw this morning on the news, the mother of uh, the teacher that was killed in Parkland and she had actually spoken to this Congresswoman and alleges the Congresswoman said to her, I don't really believe those things, which makes me question why she thought it was politically opportunistic to say she does. Um, It's all strange. It's all weird. She's not fit for office in our hometown, let alone in the United States Congress.
0: Mr. Hodes.
1: Well, the Republicans have a real dilemma. The Republican base is a um, is a is a bit of a conundrum for elected representatives because the Republican base, a good part of them are kind of in the camp of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is approved, uh, who has the approval of former President Now cheating golfer Donald Trump, Um, he he, she's going to go down and meet with him. He's come. He said what a wonderful person she is. Um, And, uh, you know, the at least the recent polling from the base says that uh, they're kind of in that camp of uh, on the conspiracy side. So it poses a real it poses a real dilemma. Kevin McCarthy himself made the pilgrimage down to see Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch, has apparently distanced himself, saying that her conspiracy theories are a cancer on the Republican Party. So you've got a schism, a big divide going on, remember? This is the party where one hundred and thirty nine elected representatives stood up after uh, the coup attempt and um, refused to agree that Joe Biden was elected in a valid election. So it's hard to Kevin McCarthy has to walk a pretty fine line. I mean, if if the leadership of the Republican Party uh, takes strong action against Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, they're sending uh, a message to their base that may result in an awful lot of uh, primary challenges from the right to an awful lot of members who you'd think are already so far right nothing could challenge them from the right but it's it's part of the the problem the Republicans have backed themselves into a real corner about this and frankly the the thing that I think is now hurting the Republicans more than anything is the kind of dithering that's going on about what to do. Alicia's right. What the Republicans, and this is coming from a Democrat, what the Republicans need is they need surgery and they need it now. uh, And they need a surgical removal uh, of Marjorie Taylor Greene as the chief exponent of the wacko conspiracy theories that, most people or many people now believe, characterize the values of the Republican Party.
3: Now, what I'd like to see happen as a passionate centrist left Democrat is the surgery that Paul outlined and that Alicia outlined. What I think is more likely to happen is, look, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, the, the House Republican leader, does find himself in a deep conundrum. I'm not crying a river for his predicament, but there is no straightforward answer uh, to the to the position he finds himself in. There is a huge part of his caucus that is pretty angry at Liz Cheney. There is a huge part of his caucus that does not want to do anything to Marjorie Taylor Greene. What he will probably do is try to do what Dwight Eisenhower recommended. If you have an intractable problem, enlarge it. I would guess that he will try to pair these two issues together and that he will suggest to his whole caucus that it doesn't avail them anything to be sniping at one another, to have ongoing cycles of recriminations over the things that people said that's so two months ago. And he will suggest that they stop going after Liz Cheney in her position as the number three House Republican. And she will in turn not apologize for her vote on impeachment, but perhaps suggest that she will modulate her tone and be more constructive going forward. That will be her mea culpa. Similarly, I would guess, and this is speculation, I would guess that Marjorie Taylor Greene will do the same thing, that she will not directly address what she said before she was elected to Congress, but she will suggest that she will modulate her tone accordingly. And they will try and achieve an inter-caucus, intra-caucus detente over the issue. Whether that will stop Democrats from coming in and taking more aggressive action against Representative Green, that I can't tell you. Um, I think that's a, as Paul could attest, that is a dangerous road for how the House of Representatives is managed. I'm not sure where it leads to. But anyway, that is my prediction is some kind of a let's all lay our arms down on this matter type compromise from McCarthy.
2: If I may, though, I think there's something that leadership in Washington and elsewhere are missing. And that is that I don't think they're in the conundrum they think they are. They're in this bubble and there's this very vocal group of people, but there's not a lot of them compared to the voting bloc of the country that are screaming all these crazy things, right? The the Greens of the world, they're saying all these insane QAnon conspiracies and nonsense and they're really loud. And so Congress thinks that that is the Trump voting bloc and they don't wanna lose the Trump voting bloc. It's not the Trump voting bloc. It absolutely is not the 75 million people. It is a much smaller group. So McCarthy and others think they're in this conundrum that if they don't penalize the kook like Marjorie Greene, that they're gonna be in trouble themselves. I don't think they are. I don't think, I think they got to get outside of the bubble and talk to we regular Republicans and independents who lean Republican and listen to us say, that's not us. That is not the majority of us. Do the right thing. We want you to do the right thing, but they got to get out of Washington to realize that the conundrum isn't quite as much there as they think it is.
3: That's a really solid point. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, you know, I, I would just draw a parallel from the point you are making to. A similar situation on the left where it's been well-documented that Twitter Democrats are not the same thing as regular human Democrats, and it has been suggested, strongly suggested that Democratic leadership needs to get out of their online social media bubble and experience what the real world uh, actually thinks of their policies. That's a very interesting point, Alicia. You might, you might be right about that.
0: Well, what you said uh, is despicable no matter when uh, it took place, but this certainly gets wide coverage in the mainstream media, whereas when uh, Maxine Waters called for violence against uh, anyone in the Trump administration, you uh, heard crickets about that.
3: That's That's a fair point. You know, I do think think that there's a lesson here, which is, look, we're in the age of whataboutisms right? As soon as you say something about one side, especially if it's indefensible, the rote response is, okay, well, what about fill in the blank? And that's not really a legitimate response to say, well, someone on your side is just as bad. However, to Ken's point, I do think that Democrats, I'm one of them, need to stop walking into doors and stepping on rakes where they can avoid them. It does seem fairly obvious to me that maybe calling for violence, that's just not okay. Um, And and maybe we need a little bit of uh, spinal fortitude to stand up and say, hey, Maxine, we love
1: you, but WTF? No, no.
0: (laughs) Well, all of this, go ahead, Paul.
1: No, no, no. I'm just I'm just thinking about the uh, the the conversation between Maxine and Nancy um, uh, over this. Um, If you know Maxine Waters, um, it would be a very it'd be a I'd love to be a fly on on that wall. Um, Maxine is a um, very opinionated, very voluble, voluble person um, uh, with um, a, a. a, a strong sense of self, shall we say? Uh, that's a isn't that a nice way to put it? A strong sense of self. So it would be a very interesting conversation. But look, ultimately, I I agree with with Matt. You know, what, whatever inflammatory uh, flamethrowers we we may throw around on the radio um, and in the media, that in it, all of it really needs to be toned down. Um, to a degree, the challenge is when when what we've seen uh, is the um, rise of this fringe uh, right wing white nativism that produced a violent insurrection with people killed. Um, it It puts in perspective just how seriously uh, language and words matter. Um, nobody should be espousing, violence against anybody else. We've got to tone it down in this country from the left, from the right, from the middle um, and take seriously that as Americans, um, when the president talks about unity, he's not necessarily talking about policy, but he's talking about unity among the American people. Uh, In in rising above, in understanding that we're all in this, we are all in this together. Um, And uh, if we are to preserve our democracy and our union, um, time to tone down the rhetoric and and just treat each other with more respect as violently as we may disagree. uh, It's important not to be overly disagreeable.
2: I I think that's the important part. The temperature's got to come down in this country. Um, whether it's Maxine Waters or someone on the right or, or Donald Trump or anyone else, we've got to stop calling for that level of angst against someone we disagree with. Just You, you don't have to hate someone on the other side and wish ill upon them on the other side. And I, I don't know where that got to be the norm. And it all should be condemned um, when, you know, someone says, Republican X said, blah, blah, blah. And a Republican replies, yeah, well, Maxine Waters said, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't excuse what the first person said. It just means it's all bad. You know, and what is whataboutism? Well, Billy did this, but Sally did this, so that makes it okay. This aren't third graders in a classroom. This is our United States government. And that can't be how we excuse the behavior of any of them.
0: This all comes against a backdrop of dozens of Republicans and former President George W. Bush's administration announcing they're leaving the party, uh, dismayed by a failure of many elected Republicans to disown Donald Trump, calling the Republican Party a Trump cult. Uh, We've talked on this panel before about whether the Republican Party would uh, disintegrate uh, after Trump. So where are are we on that now, uh, Alicia?
2: Well, I'm not going anywhere. Sorry, Republicans. (laughs) Just let you know. Uh, You know, (laughs) I've never been a Republican because of any one politician, and I never will be. I'm a Republican because I believe in the ideas of individual liberties and freedoms and smaller government and conservative concepts. And that's what the Republican Party says they are. And I will be one unless that changes, no matter who is getting elected by them. Um, I I, I think things will calm down. I think give it six months or a year and it's going to come down. Donald Trump won't be in the picture anymore. It'll been for quite some time. And maybe I'm just Pollyanna again. There is a schism in the party, but I think at the end of the day, we are here because of ideals, not because of one man.
0: Well,
1: Alicia from your lips to God's ears, because it would be a good thing for our country and our democracy to have two vibrant, responsible parties with different views about the best way to accomplish uh, the common goals and share and and shared American values um, that we have. And there will always be there will always be differences. And it would be it would be uh, terrific to get back to the normal dysfunction. Uh, of our government. I mean, that would be, you know, that would be like uh, you no more, no more sleepless nights. You'd know that, that there was disagreement, but uh, you weren't scared that one Congress member was going to go after another Congress member with a gun. Um, and look, our country is a young country. We are relatively immature in the ways of this democratic experiment. It's only a couple of hundred years old. There are going to be all kinds of missteps. What what has recently happened with Trump was exactly what the founders feared. And we, if we all can take a lesson Left, right and center. If we all can take a lesson, um, we can get back to some kind of functioning dysfunction um, instead of the rabble controlling things. Now, the challenge is that we are in this age of uh, what what uh, one researcher called the other day, the social called their social media. Um, uh, environment as surveillance capitalism, where our opinions are being uh, formed for us by a giant now conglomerate tech companies and and the democratization of the internet and the way communication flows um, has outstripped our ability to really control it and given platforms for people to, to amplify the most extreme voices. So we're going to have to deal with lots of different issues to get back to where I think Alicia, both you and we are all eager to have us. So we're where we we could have a legitimate policy disagreement about the $15 minimum wage without worrying uh, that somebody's going to pull out a gun. I mean that's just no way to run a country.
0: Yeah.
3: I have a kind of complicated theory about this. You were asking about where are we now on this disintegration question. I think we've seen in fairly stark terms recently that no one who is in a leadership position, frankly, in either party, but let's just focus on Republicans for a second, really thinks it is worth her or his while to step far out of line. The snapback that you get for that is pretty, pretty deep. Mitch McConnell's tried a little bit rhetorically, but he hasn't taken any serious action to try to do the kind of surgery that Paul was talking about in terms of moving on from Trump. I think, and I have invoked quantum physics on this panel before, and I'm about to do it again. If you've heard of the Schrodinger's cat idea, where you can have Something in a black box, right? And it's in physics term, in a superposition. You can't see inside the box. And so it's both things at the same time. The cat might be dead and alive. Boy, I'm really losing people on this here, but go with me on it. You could, I think the Republican party is going to be in that state of uncertainty in a superposition, if you will, for the next two years. I don't see this being resolved unless you, in physics terms, open up the box and find out what's, unless something major happens. If Donald Trump were to pass away or start a third party or actually be convicted in impeachment, if something exogenous happens that's major, sure, that'll, that'll push us outside the equilibrium point. But failing that, I think Republican leaders are going to continue to try to walk this very fine edge of not repudiating Donald Trump, of not repudiating the elements of their party, small as they may be, that tend toward the, the fringe, the QAnon factor in the party. And at the same time, they're they're not going to go with a full embrace either. They clearly don't want to do that. I think they're going to be kind of stuck at this razor's knife's edge unless they're forcibly pushed off of it and they're just gonna try and ride it out through the next election and see if they can take advantage of the typical midterm pattern of the party out of power, out of holding the presidency, tending to do well uh, in those kinds of cycles.
1: So can I just ask, is is exogenous what happens with milk when it comes out of the cow and then it's exogenized and then <laughs> And you can drink it. Is that what that word means?
2: That's
3: right. You, you heat it up and you exogenize it. And that gets rid of it. It's the same thing as pasteurization, except, huh. you know, you do it exogenously. Okay. I just
2: want to note that I was going to Google that word. So uh, Look, <laughs> I, well,
3: guess. I, I figured <laughs> since I was in quantum physics, I was just going to double down. I, I was going to go all the way and I was going to go to exogenous. I, I'm I'm this close to speaking Latin. And by the way, as much as I call myself kind of a center left, you can see that I'm really a, a, a Democrat because I use all the big words, all the all the facts. I'm as smug as it comes. It's it, it's pretty reprehensible.
0: <laughs> well, we're kind of running out of time here and uh, we only have about a minute left. So and any thoughts, quick thoughts about uh, the impeachment, which uh, starts next week?
2: They shouldn't do it. They're not going to win. It's just going to put Trump back in the headlines, divide the country more, move on, get over it.
1: They have to do it. They're not going to win. But they got to do it anyway because they got to show people that all the bad things Trump did uh, in order to win the midterms in 2022 and keep it in the forefront of people's brains.
3: Now that we have evidence that 45 Senate Republicans are not going to vote to convict because we've done a test vote on it, they should explore the option that Senator Kane and Senator Collins have put forward of a censure. They should have a very speedy trial, not followed by a swift execution, but by a censure resolution that Republicans and Democrats can get behind.
0: And on that note, we have to uh, wrap up this edition of Balance of Power, and I want to thank our panel, Paul Hogan, Matt Robeson, Alicia Preston, and for them, I'm Ken Kale. We will look for you next time on Balance of Power.